The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians 15. The associate pastors are camping out in this important chapter for four messages on the resurrection, even weeks before Easter, help strengthen our foundation as we celebrate in late March. You know, this past year, there's been a lot of concussion, a lot of, of emphasis and stories about concussions and brain injuries, especially in the sport of football. Uh, which is featured in a, a popular film recently starring Will Smith, uh, highlighting the dangers of severe head trauma. And uh, sadly, one of the consequences uh, of a severe brain concussion is impaired reasoning ability. Well, it seems that Paul, the apostle, is writing to the Corinthians who seem to be experiencing a kind of spiritual concussion. They, they demonstrate reasoning impairment having been hit with a blow from worldly philosophies that were rejecting the resurrection and failing to see the obvious consequences of holding such a view. Paul writes to set them and us straight with sound reasoning, explaining out the logic of what lies behind the resurrection, the rejection of which leads to despair, but the embrace leads to hope eternal. Please follow as I read 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins." Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed 
is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted. Who put all things in subjection under him? When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. They say this to your shame. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this message, this message of hope in a world and culture of death. We thank you that we have a strong foundation upon which to stand. Pray that you would correct our reasoning, strengthen our logic, and build up our faith as we hear from your word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Google executive Ray Kurzweil takes 150 vitamins a day in his effort to cheat death. This 67-year-old futurist and director of engineering at Google has a bridge upon a bridge to a bridge system in which he hopes to live long enough to see a biotechnological revolution. His goal is to make it to bridge two, where the biotech revolution will be changed to reprogram our biology away from disease. He even envisions a day of reaching bridge three, when we will go beyond biology to nanotechnology. He holds out hope that we will one day create small robots that are able to augment our immune systems. Because, Mr. Kurzweil argues, human biology is nothing more than a software process. You and I are walking around in outdated, with outdated software that had, was evolved in a very different era. What you and I need is an upgrade to our software system to reprogram it so that we can live effectively forever, resilient to the dangers of age and disease. I also understand that leaders at Google hope that one day they will be able to preserve the mind and the personality digitally without the nuisance of a real body and its demise. In their view... The body is mere wetware whose weakness can be discarded so that we can enjoy a disembodied state and a painless experience. It's fascinating how such ideas are recycled as Google and Ray Kurzweil's vision are not that different from the ancient Greeks whose philosophy was deceiving Corinthian believers, blinding them to the truth and the sound reasoning established by Christ's resurrection from the dead. Paul, in this 
section of his letter, is responding by, to the questions of some in the congregation who were questioning the resurrection. It seems that they had forgotten the gospel message and were caving into the, the, Greek, the Greek and Roman idea of salvation, of one's soul escaping the prison of the body after death. Jews believed in a general resurrection at the end of the age, but did not expect the Messiah, their Messiah, to both die and rise again on their behalf. So we need to recognize that neither Jews nor Greeks and Romans were any more inclined to believe in the resurrection than secular skeptical people are in our own day. The resurrection is a radical message to the ancient world. It is the great breakthrough of human history that medical science will never achieve. If you look back over the New Testament, you find that the primary preaching message in the book of Acts and elsewhere was not the moral teachings of Jesus. It was the historical fact of the resurrection. You see, Christianity is only valid if this one central truth claim is indeed fact, that Jesus rose again from the dead. If Jesus is still dead, Christianity is a hoax, and we are believing in a dead religion. But if Christ rose again, according to the testimony of all the disciples— all of whom suffered greatly, most of whom who experienced a martyr's death. It changes everything. It is the true game-changer of history. And contrary to those who argue it doesn't matter whether Jesus rose or not, there is no other fact more important in all of human history. So Paul opens in our passage confronting the empty claim of some Corinthians of that there is no resurrection by exposing the consequences of such a belief. You know, once again, the, the Greeks and the Romans, the philosophers of the ancient world, they, they longed for the soul to escape the body at death and to experience a, a freedom in the spirit world, a, a freedom from want and the needs of the body. But this is contrary to God's plan because God likes the physical. God made the body, and it's God's vision and desire for his worshipers to glorify him forever in his presence in renewed, perfected, imperishable bodies. You see, a world without resurrection ends in hopeless despair. And so we need to follow Paul's logic to evaluate the consequences of rejecting this important Christian truth claim. So consequence number one, Paul says that the denial of the resurrection discredits preaching. It makes it vain. It's empty. It's hollow without the resurrection because the only reason we have preaching is because of the resurrection of Christ. Sadly, Many liberal preachers preach sermons that are void of any hope because they reject belief in the resurrection. Their message has to anchor to the human spirit, 
the hope and the power of a community or some vague notion of a God of love. But you and I would be better off watching Disney movies than to listening to garbage that's not rooted in the resurrection. Sadly, also, the message of the cross and the resurrection are sometimes missing, even from churches that claim to believe these things. In many even evangelical churches, the temptation to go therapeutic, to, to only meet people's felt needs, tends to miss the mark on emphasizing what Jesus accomplished for our salvation. Christ's death was necessary to secure the forgiveness of our sins, and his resurrection is also necessary to guarantee a place for us in the Father's presence. Not as nebulous spirits floating around on clouds, but robust new creations that God intended us to be from eternity past. Consequence two, the denial of the resurrection discounts our faith. Without the resurrection, we just have faith in faith. All right? It's really no better than anything the agnostics, the spiritualists, the material evolutionists believe, who really have no basis for any hope in this life for the life to come. You know, it's the popular entertainment mantra today, whether it's Disney or Oprah, is just believe. Just believe. Just believe in yourself or believe in something. We all know that that's empty. It's like buying a new television set and opening the box and all you find find is styrofoam peanuts. There's no substance to it. Christianity is about substance. It's about hard facts. It's about reason and logic and historically demonstrable uh, truths that we hold on to. It's based upon the solid foundation the resurrection of Christ. Consequence three. If the dead are not raised, and if Jesus is not raised, then Paul and the other apostles were misrepresenting God. They not only were mistaken, they also were liars. Imagine a scientist who gains a great breakthrough uh, discovery with cancer or a cure for Alzheimer's, and he uh, uh, publishes a report he holds uh, a news conference. He's all over the media, uh, giving hope to millions of sufferers. But then he discovers that one of his research assistants was incompetent, had fudged the results, and consequently they had to nullify all of their test results. That scientist would have to retract his claim, likewise, to deny the resurrection is to retract the teaching authority of the apostles. Consequence four. If the dead are not raised, and if Jesus was not raised, not only is your faith futile, you are still in your sins. Imagine if you were undergoing chemotherapy. At first, your doctor was hopeful that you were in remission, but then came the bad news. Your cancer is back. Your remission is over. And that's a sad story that many people have to suffer. But how much sadder is the story that our cure for sin is no longer effective? You see, we live in a culture that says that the resurrection is past its expiration date. And we have to respond to that 
with nonsense. That is complete nonsense. Without the resurrection, there is no hope for sinners. Because if Jesus did not die for sins, if he did not prove his victory over sin and death by his resurrection, you and I are still under God's judgment and face his almighty wrath. We have no hope for rescue and deliverance from our sins apart from Christ. You know, sometimes believers will make a comment asking kind of, how is it, how can non-believers even uh, manage life or face death without God? I'll tell you how they do it, with wishful thinking. It's just by wishful thinking, it's delusional, by ignoring it, by hiding it, by trying to run from the brutal facts of life and death. They're afraid to face it. Occasionally, pastors will be visiting with a family who have a loved one that's dying, and that loved one is a strong believer who, who wants to go to heaven, who's looking forward to being free of the body of sin and death. But there are members of that family who aren't ready. They don't want the pastor or even the doctor telling them that mama's going to die. They have not reconciled themselves to the fact that mama's going to die. Have you reconciled yourself to the fact that you will face death, that your life on this earth will end? Are you prepared? Have you come to terms with the biblical truth? You have two options. You can face death and stand before God in judgment based on the track record of your own performance, based upon the record of your obedience according to the holy word of God. Or you can stand before God in judgment in a perfect track record of Jesus Christ. You only have two options. Choose this day. Choose this day how you will face death and the judgment to come. By renouncing the flesh, by renouncing hope in myself, by renouncing any religious effort to be right with God and trust in the perfect work of Jesus Christ, the only hope for sinners. You see, being a Christian is about facing the facts. It's about being authentic. It's about facing up to what is real about life and death and sin and judgment. It's a reality checkup that blasts through all the disillusionment and delusional nature of this world. Consequence five. If the dead are not raised, then our loved ones who have gone before us are gone. They're gone forever. Sayonara, see ya, without the resurrection, there is no reunion. You see, a world without resurrection is bleak. It is a dark and lonely world. Those people, those people who reject the Christian faith, who think they're being authentic by trying to live out the full implications of their atheism, that accepting the fact that their bodies will decay and become fertilizer for the earth, the, the truth is they're not being authentic enough. They're not really contending with the reality. You and I, as image bearers of God, have a deep longing. A deep longing for a reunion and union with God. A deep longing to live for something bigger than ourselves. We have eternity aches within our hearts and our souls. We can't escape it. We can't suppress it. We can't deny it. We have to face up to it. 
Paul says in verse 19, if our hope is in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. We're pitied because we're delusional. We're pitied because we have a false hope. We are pitied because we deny ourselves the pleasures of immorality and refusing to drown ourselves in our despair. We are to be pitied because we make sacrifices to a false and dead Messiah. Now, if there is no resurrection, there is no reason for us to be here. If there is no resurrection, let's turn off the lights, let's go home, Let us console our own miseries in the way we think best, minimizing our pain, maximizing our pleasures until the bitter end. That is the bleak consequences of a world without resurrection. So Paul was candid. Paul was candid and leads us to the dreadful conclusion of a world without resurrection so he can revive us with the hope, the glorious but in verse 20. But in fact... In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He proceeds in verses 21 and 22 to remind us that death entered the world by the sin of one man. That you and I are inheritors of sin. And people in our individualistic day and age cry, well, that's not fair. What did I have to do with that? Well, you and I were born into this world not by the will of of our own, but by the will of our parents. You and I are impacted all the time by the will and the decisions of others. If the president leads us to war, we're involved. It impacts us. If business leaders and government leaders make decisions that wreck the world economy, we suffer the consequences for it. All of us are impacted by the will and the decisions of others. And so it is that we inherit a sin nature by the will of our first parents. And you and I are complicit by our own sin, our own response to our sin nature. And it's a message that many are desperate to suppress. I encourage you sometime to make a trip to Washington, D.C. to visit the natural, uh, the Smithsonian Institute Museum of Natural History. And uh, when you're there, I think you'll agree with me, you'll identify a very determined effort, a very determined modern effort to suppress the truth of human origins. As you walk around the Natural History Museum in our nation's capital, you find yourself overwhelmed as an earnest believer by the dogmatic, uncompromising message that we are descendants of less intelligent hominids who evolved over tens of thousands of years. And all of it's backed up, supposedly, by very dubious claims of transitional forms and mutations and natural selection all of which are evidence that are found wanting on the scales of reason and logic. You see, the assumption behind such a view is that there can be no Adam, that there can be no origins, that there is no sin nature. You see, the the advantages of an evolutionary worldview is that our bad behavior can be explained away by mutations. Our bad behavior can be explained away by our biology. Now, if that's so, we are not responsible for ourselves. And that we are not accountable to our maker. And so it's in the sinful mind of fallen man to suppress the truth, 
the truth that we are culpable for our sin, that it is our fault, that we have brought more devastation to the earth and to the human race than any claims of climate change. See, Paul reminds us that all humanity died in the sin of Adam, and that we will be raised in judgment. Both the righteous and the wicked will be raised on the judgment day. And this is the truth that is suppressed by false churches, by false philosophies, by false sciences throughout the world and throughout human history. But to deny this truth is to deny ourselves true hope to hold on to a man-centered solution of, of humanity's dilemma is to deny and cut oneself off from the abounding love of God, the grace and the power of God, the privilege to identify with Jesus Christ, our representative, our redeemer, the one who can deliver us from our dreadful condition. You know, when someone signs up for a new healthcare plan, You want to know the benefits of signing up with this plan. Well, what are the benefits with the resurrection? So Paul proceeds in verses 23 and following to to roll out the various benefits of our resurrection. We'll focus on four. Reunion, reward, restoration, and resolution. The first is reunion. Paul says in verse 23 that Christ will bring back on the day of his return, he will bring back those who belong to him. The language here echoes messages of Jesus from John chapter 10 when he says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me and they shall never perish. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Everyone who believes in Christ belongs to Christ. You are His, and you can look forward to reunion with Him and all those who have gone before us, that we will be reunited on the day that death will be dealt the final death blow. Our second benefit is the fact that we have a Savior who reigns, a ruler who will reward the righteous and bring revenge upon the wicked. In verses 24 and 25, Paul appeals to the fact that Christ will hand over the kingdom to God on the day that he destroys the very last enemies of God. He will also reap recompense on every ruler and authority, ending all oppression and injustice across the earth. The day will come when there is no Kim Jong-un. There will be no Castro family. There will be no more suffering in North Korea or Cuba. There will be no more North Korean Christians who hide their faith, even from their own children, out of fear of being sent to the government prison camps. The day will come when there will be no more nations seeking to blackmail the other nations with the threat of nuclear power. There will be no more ISIS rampaging the Middle East, blowing up bombs in Western cities, seducing young people, to their warped and wicked worldview. There will be no more efforts to redefine marriage, to indoctrinate students with a new morality that defies God's design for human flourishing. The day will come when Christ will reign in justice and righteousness, and all his enemies will be underneath his almighty feet. 
the reign of Christ. We'll usher in restoration. The third benefit of resurrection. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is unnatural. It's a parasite. It was not part of God's good and perfect plan for his people. We rightly mourn at death. We are right to be angry at death, just as Jesus was angry outside the tomb of Lazarus. And Jesus came to rescue those who all their lives were in bondage, enslaved to their fear of death, as Hebrews chapter 2 reports. You know, every major religion or worldview has to contend with the reality and the horror of death. Naturalistic evolution, atheism, spiritualism, and every other religion must confront the human loathing of death. It must offer some response, some solution to the problem. The resurrection of Christ is the only truth that brings restoration, that restores what life was meant to be, free of pain and misery. All other belief systems are truly pie in the sky. Only Christianity offers final resolution to the great story of human history. We all know that government can't fix our problems. We all know that science and medical technology cannot solve our deepest problems. We long for the day when the great healer will return, when the true benevolent dictator will make all things right. Verses 27 and 28 begin to talk about all things being subject to him. Where humanity failed, and when God made us in his image, he called us and made us to be uh, caretakers of the earth, to subdue it. And where we failed, Christ prevails, appealing to Psalm 8. And all things will be made subject to him. Christ is what we hope for. He is the resolution of the story. It's his story that will bring an answer to the great cosmic conflict of sin, death, and judgment. So how do we respond to these things? Well, what is our response to the truth of the resurrection? Well, Paul offers applications of his own in verses 29 to 34, various practical things that are the logical outcomes of resurrection reason. But first, we need to answer the question of verse 29, this confusing passage about uh, believers being baptized on behalf of the dead. Well, I think there's a very simple answer to this problem. And the best explanation uh, for why, why people were being baptized on behalf of the dead is that people were merely receiving baptism because they desired reunion with those who had died. Think about it. Lots of unbelievers who had believing family members who had died, who had died with Christian hope, who had died with the hope of resurrection, and in their bewilderment and their frustration and despair, they hear the gospel. They hear the message of Christ at a funeral, and they respond with faith. They respond with a desire to be baptized because they desire reunion with those, their believing kindred who had gone on before them. Well, every pastor throughout history can uh, testify to deathbed conversions and funeral conversions as people in their despair, in their sadness and sorrow, hear the message of the gospel and respond with faith and are ready to commit to the only hope that we have in life under the sun. Well, there's four applications we'll consider as we wrap up this text. The first is that because of the resurrection, we can face danger 
and not live a life of self-protection. We can face real danger and not live lives of protecting self. Verse 30, Paul says, you know, why do we believers face danger every day? I mean, if there is no resurrection, why do you risk your life? Why would you take a risk for anybody else if there is no hope after the grave? I mean, if evolution is true, there is no real reason to sacrifice yourself for anybody else, save only maybe a parent for a child to pass on his or her genes. But the truth is, people take life and death risks all the time because they believe in something bigger than themselves. Even Buddhist monks, even Islamic terrorists will die because they believe in something. Firefighters and rescue workers will give up their lives for the value of human life. People will die for all kinds of great causes, but not for something they know is a lie. The disciples knew the disciples had witnessed the resurrection of Christ. And they all were willing to suffer under death. Not claiming Jesus was a good man. Not claiming, clinging to his moral teachings. But claiming that he rose from the dead. They died martyrs' death holding out hope of the resurrection. The second application. Because of the resurrection, we can die to self. And no longer live self-absorbed lives. Paul says in verse 31 that he dies every day. Believer, you are a dead man. You are a dead woman already. You have already died to sin. You've already died to your former way of life. And so it's only logical that you would embrace death to self. You see, Jesus called us to take up our cross to die daily, to give up our rights to ourselves, to humble ourselves, to lay aside our anxieties, our fears, and our doubts. You see, death to self means that I am seeking a greater glory than my own glory, that I'm seeking the glory of God and the good of others because I have hope in real resurrection. You know, Paul will go on in, the, in these verses to, to consider the cost. He counts up the cost of being devoured by beasts and fighting wild animals and enduring uh, demonic warfare. And all of this would be too much. If there is no resurrection, if there is no resurrection, why bother? Why sacrifice? Why do anything to benefit our fellow man? But Paul contends that our hardship is worthwhile. That our suffering is not in vain. And you and I have to fight the message daily, our cultural message that screams at us to live for this life only. Friends, we have so much more to live for. We have so much more to die for because we have the hope of the resurrection. As Paul will say here in 2 Corinthians and in Romans and in Philippians, that nothing, nothing at all in this world is worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. It is all worth it for the sake of Jesus Christ. Well, thirdly, we're called to deny our flesh. To deny our flesh, to not live a life of self-indulgence. Paul quotes verse 32. Uh, In verse 32, he quotes from Isaiah that if there is no resurrection, let's all become hedonists. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. What a graphic picture that is of today's college campus, 
a place of revelry, a place of self-indulgence, a place where the message is, do your body. Whatever you do to your body doesn't matter. It's no one else's business what you do with yourself. And we see with the rise of revelry in our culture, the rise of depression and addiction and mental and emotional health problems. Self-indulgence ends in despair and death. And without the resurrection, we have nothing better to offer as an alternative. Without the resurrection, the pastor is merely uh, there to pacify and to be kind of an emotional morphine dispenser. If I don't have the hope of resurrection, I resign. I have better things to do. But because of the resurrection, I have a real alternative to offer you. You have a real alternative to people who are in despair, who are lost, who are hurting, who are self-indulging, who are self-defeating, who are dying on the inside and killing themselves in all the worldly pleasures and miseries that the world has to offer. Yes, we can deny our flesh because God promises us a new body, a perfected body. God holds out the promise that we will experience pleasures and fulfillment of desires that we can hardly even imagine in this life because of the resurrection and the hope that comes in the new heavens and the new earth. And lastly, Paul exhorts us to deny the lies to deny the lies that are prevalent in our culture, that we not live a life of self-deception. Because that is what people do. Idolatry is self-deception. Addiction is self-deception. Consuming ourselves with the pleasures of this life to escape, to hide from our misery, is self-deception. He says in verses 33 and 34, not to be deceived by false company, not to be deceived by temptations to sin. You see, the resurrection hope gives us inoculation against deceit. The resurrection squares us in truth and reality to fight the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Stop consoling yourselves in falsehoods. Stop consoling yourselves with bait-and-switch promises. Paul says, choose your company wisely. Be with people who will encourage you, who will remind you of this hope, who will hold you accountable to the reason and the logic that flows from holding out the hope of the resurrection. And by the power of the resurrection, we expose the lies of sin, the lies that God is not good enough, the lies that this world is all there is. Friends, wake up. Wake up on the wheel of life and follow reason, resurrection road, trusting God for ultimate glory. You know, if medical science could extend your life indefinitely, months, years, and decades, would you? Would you extend your life by centuries if you could? You know, it's a mercy that we don't live forever that we don't live forever in a sinful body in a fallen world. Yes, death is an intruder. It's a parasite. And yet, as a Christian, we're called to accept our condition because through it we have great hope of deliverance from pain and misery, not by human technology, but through the power of the resurrection, that same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. 
There are those who hope that our human race will evolve and as something more sturdy, more peaceful, more wise, taking care of the earth and so forth. But you know, that is not the Bible's vision for hope. Yes, we will gain enduring bodies. We will have peace with God and others. And yes, we will wisely serve and steward the creation. But not after millions of years of evolution. Not after vast advancements in human technology and mastery over the earth. But by the grace and power of God. Who will transform our lowly, weak bodies. Our sin nature into something glorious. Something beautiful to behold beyond our wildest imaginations. Yes, embrace resurrection reason. Not just on Easter Sunday, but on every day. Confident that Christ is risen from the dead. That what you do in the body counts for eternity. And hold on to this hope that sustains us through life's fiery trials. Holding out for the promise of reward to come. Come. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for that eternal, everlasting, solid hope that we have in Jesus Christ. The one who has proclaimed victory over the grave. The one who has risen. The one who has a glorious body that reigns forever. And the one who promises to return to claim us for himself and to give us new bodies free of sin and pain and misery and frustration free to live and dwell with God forever. May we hold on to that hope. Give us strength to fight the battle well, to honor and serve you with joy in our hearts. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.